This is Max. This is Christina. This is Evan. This is Allie. And you're listening to Semi Pros. You haven't read the half of it. So today we're talking about Anar Ali's Night of Power. Um, and it's about a family who's living in 1998 Calgary. And we know that because eventually there's an email with that timestamp on it. Um, there's Mansoor, who uh, runs a dry cleaning business. He's in his 50s, I believe. And uh, there's Layla, his wife, who runs maybe a small catering company. And their son, Ashif, is in Toronto. I don't know if we get a sense of what type of work he is in, but it's he's some kind of a lower level executive or upper middle management. It's a pretty... All I could think of was when they explained his job was like up in the air. He's like George. Well, it's essentially Anna Kendrick in yeah. Up in the Air, where yeah. it like goes around. He's at some sort of corporation, and there he's helping that them downsize essentially. So we meet them. This is where they are, um, and their family is sort of in this place of uh, stuckness and disconnect. So there's a bit of a there's a coldness between the husband and wife. There's a coldness between the husband and son. I think there is between mother and son too, but there's maybe a bit more warmth. But also the story jumps back, you know, to their past where uh, Mansoor's grown up in uh, Uganda um, and to when he's a little bit older and there is Ismaili. There is and in, I guess in 1972 or 71, I think, when all the uh, Asian people in Uganda were expelled. So there's parts of the story that touch on that. Um, it jumps back to when Ashif is a young boy. Um, so it jumps back and forth to their past and to this current life in Calgary, where Mansoor, out of some really, really misguided, in a really misguided way, wants Ashif to come into business with him and expand their dry cleaning business. So this is where we begin the book. And I guess we started off talking about a letter that one of Ashif's childhood girlfriends, Shafina writes him at some point. And I think that conversation sort of touches on the main, I think one of the main themes of the book is sort of this, you know, this sort of disconnect between all the different people in the book. Have you guys ever gotten a letter where someone tells you something? No. So everyone I know has gotten these like messages from like people in their earlier lives, their past (laughs) lives talking about like, oh, like either like it was like wonderful to know you or something or somebody being like, oh, like, I don't know what happened to our friendship or whatever. Like I have never gotten one of these messages and I really want one. Oh, follow up question. Who would you expect to get it from? I feel like that's the whole point. Is it somebody you never expected? I mean, he should have expected it from her. Yeah. That seems like a momentous Who would you want it from in your life? Name their name. We'll call them and solicit one from Um, you. I'm trying to think. Oh, I would want it from this girl that I was really good friends with in high school. And then we both went, we were like the only two people who went to the same university from our high school. And we kind of just drifted apart a little. We like stayed friends in first year and then drifted apart we're drifting apart near the end of high school but uh and then she left that university in second year and i want one from her and, mm. and you want why do you want this from her? her to kind of explain i feel like i don't feel like i don't have any like lingering like i don't need any closure on it i understand why we stopped being friends i think we just kind of had different priorities but i feel like she's the most 
likely person, like the the one that would actually have something to say because we were really close and then we weren't, mm-hmm. which is like pretty typical okay. of like post high school. But like, okay. I still know people from high school and stuff. So I feel like she's like one that it's like, oh, I've kept in touch with these people, but I haven't kept in touch with you. You might be the same age as Ashif in the book, so maybe you're you're due for like this. Maybe I'm due, maybe it's coming. Yeah, this later story. this year. <laughs> Evan, have you ever written something like this to anybody? Mm, uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I'm trying to remember. I feel like I've written very long emails that were trying to explain like something that was weird, but I think it was one of those things where something weird happened and in my mind I'm like what did I do when it was really like something that someone else was doing and then I just made it more awkward okay um, I do remember so very specifically uh, what was it uh, I can't remember the full story I'll, I'll remember later. it was something about like someone so this is when I was single and then a woman like tweeted something and was like just texted my crush if he doesn't respond back in the next hour, I guess we'll know how that happened. And did you get and a I text? Te- and I got a text. And <gasps> I was like, oh. So I, like, texted back. And then, like, nothing. And I was like, oh, that was weird. So then, like, a couple hours a couple hours later, I was like, sorry. I, maybe I misinterpreted it. And they were like, literally. So the, the response was, go to bed, Evan. And I was like, whoa. And I was like, all right. So then I, like, months and months later, sent an email. I was like, sorry, I misinterpreted whatever and then it was like fine, but I was like, kind of ran myself in circles, figuring out like, what did I do wrong? What did I answer yeah. too quickly, too late? Um, anyway, it was fine, but that was one of those things where I sp- sent an e- email that was like explaining my rationale. That's amazing. And stuff. Anyway, it was a very weird. So was was it you? Was she talking about you? I mean, I don't understand how it couldn't have been okay. me because we had never or like very rarely texted before that. So it was like weird to get like a email out of nowhere, or sorry, a text out of nowhere. It was it was really nice of uh, Shafina to send Ashif. So have you ever gotten anything? I have, and I'm uh, sorry. I guess yeah. I already knew my answer when I was asking her. I was like pretending I was listening. I was just preparing my own answer. <laughs> Not caring what anybody says. You're like, when do I talk? <laughs> so I had like a girlfriend for um, seven years throughout my twenties, and uh, you know, like pretty like good love, and uh, but it never sort of. I guess it sort of got stuck somewhere and I didn't, you know, when I first broke up, I, I thought it was something about her had having stopped being attracted to me and or something like something really straightforward. And then um, I guess like for five years, you know, trying to like be drunk and, you know, do single stuff and, then I, <laughs> <laughs> and being stuck even more, yeah. being stuck even more. And then I'd met her at one point. Um, we had, you know, just reconnect and grab the drink. And it was a nice conversation. Uh, and I always thought that it was like this thing where I'd broken her heart and that I'd gone on and done something. She had been a, not attracted to me. And then she, um, after that, she had given me this email that she'd written years before but had never sent. And had things like um, how she had ne- had sensed that uh, there was a stuckness to me and she never knew how to... Deal with it. Or what there was to do to move it. Mm. Um, and that hadn't been part of the story at all in my head uh, until until like she'd sent that. So that was like three years ago and it like sort of got me out of where I was at that point. Here's the question. Is Shafina a manic pixie dream is Mailey? 
Good question. <laughs> I, before we talk on that, I just wanted to to discuss this idea of the female. I think the female characters do a lot of emotional processing way more than the men do just off screen, because Shafina is the one who reaches out to a shift. Yeah. yeah, Ashif. She is the one who has come and she can hold their relationship and she sees the good and she sees the bad. And she knows what she wants from him now. And she Layla, ends up doing a job that is some, seems to be in line with like what her interests were. Yeah, and she found a path youth, where she could yeah. like follow her interests and it's gainful employment. So she found that like happy medium that Ashif never got to even like explore. And Layla has this moment at the end where she does get to speak her mind about what their life has been, and that's really probably a drop in the bucket and, like, not mm-hmm. enough. Can someone, uh, who wants to do, like, a quick uh, description of Shafina and, like, how she looks and when they first meet and that type of thing? I don't remember what she looks so like. So Shafina is... She's, got, uh, she's the sister of... So essentially, Ashif meets Shafina because his friend, uh, al Karim really wants to spend time with Shafina's sister... Uh, Azreen. Azreen's the hot girl at school. Azreen's, yeah. <laughs> so he, like, while that's happening, he's like, you gotta occupy Shafina. And then he's like, okay, like, she's Azreen's sister. How how bad could this be? And then they essentially describe her as, like, Rachel Lee Cook at the start of She's All That. <laughs> like she's got, I don't like, want to hang out with this weirdo. People are going to see me. Yeah, she's got a Prince shirt, and she's got... Uh, like Doc Martens on, <laughs> and she's wearing a beret, which like the beret is pretty embarrassing. Yeah. But <laughs> and she's like reading, uh, what's she reading, Rumi or something? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they're in high school at this point. Yeah, they're in high school, but she's like into like poetry, and she tells him about. But also, given this timeline, Prince would have been very popular. Yeah. So. Like, why would you be? Why be like, what a weirdo? This is like the number one. Uh, recording artist in America. <laughs> yeah, right now. <laughs> I feel like the gender stuff would have been strange to uh, a certain true. segment of... Yeah. Okay, fair. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, what, Ali, tell us more about Shafina. Shafina is, has like interests that are different from what Ashif has really been exposed to or really thought about before. She, as mentioned, likes Prince. She's really into Rumi. She's, she knows about, you know, European salons as conduits to finding artistic value and everything um and so she invites ashif to participate in these things with her and he goes pretty quickly from being like oh what a weirdo to being like this is great mm-hmm. i love all of these things so they start having beauty salons where they just talk <laughs> about artistic things um and become very close and then through this process they start dating with a steamy makeout, um and then they're together for a little while and we know that they broke up sometime in high school or shortly thereafter. Um, but we don't know why until the end of the book, essentially, when Shafina sends him this email. And I, I don't know if it's a spoiler, but she continues sort of, I, we said it already a little bit, but she continues extending this artistic life into what she does. Mm-hmm. And then Ashif doesn't. He chooses the opposite and more typical path aligned with, I guess, his, his father. Well, one of the main sort of relationships that has like a lot of weight is Mansoor with his own father. Mm-hmm. And his own father, like, shows up literally as, like, a kind of ghost or mm-hmm. psychic vision that essentially, like, berates him through his life whenever he faces various, like, failures or screw-ups. Am I too hard on the guy when I'm, like, once you're, like, 57 or 58 that there should be some work done where you're not seeing your ghost or your dad talking to you like that? 
Yeah, yeah I think or is so. that too I hard? I mean, like, if you're, like, a healthy person, yeah. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I think a lot of people don't just, like, don't deal with that stuff. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he talks, so Mansur talks, like, in, in the, we should note that the set, the, like, chapters are broken up that focus on certain, like, either Mansur or Layla or Ashif, and then you kind of see, it's kind of in their mind, right? Mm-hmm. Those sections, and in the sections that are in Mansur's mind, he, he even talks about, like, his son is, like, whatever, like, I think by any extrinsic extrinsic means like he's a success mm-hmm. but he still sees him as like any kind of thing he's like he's not wearing a tie what the hell is this and he's mm-hmm. like how disrespectful like he talks to his mother first and not his father and mm-hmm. like this is a sign of real disrespect and I think even though Ashif is like essentially 30 in this book he still sees him as like he should be deferential to him because I guess that was how he was to his father and even though his father is long dead he still seems to be deferential to his like imagined wishes Mm-hmm. I think also the one of the things that the book is trying to say, even if some of the parallels don't always work, is that like trauma doesn't go away. Right. It just like manifests itself and is an intergenerational mm-hmm. thing. So like the whether or not you should have dealt with it by that age, I think when you have trauma that's like something that isn't necessarily something that's going to get dealt with yeah. in a healthy way because you don't have the tools or whatever. Yeah. And in terms of like the trauma and the work, I think those are a little bit related in versus, like in Ashiv versus Mansoor and what you're looking for because Mansoor, although he does have pretty negative qualities throughout the book, <laughs> like you, self-actualization you, as right. to like what it is you'd like to be doing is a privilege that you get by having like a certain amount of money and security, which they didn't have mm-hmm. uh, when they were immigrating and getting yeah. kicked out of Uganda. You think so? Like self-actual, like. I think when you're worried about being successful, whether it's just like making money, like one, reuniting your family or whatever, and then making money so that you have a comfortable living, I think those supersede being like, what would I like to be Mm -hmm. doing? Mm -hmm. I think money, when you have had a scarcity of it at any point, is going to trump being like, hmm, is this what makes me happy? Even though that like might not be what should happen, but... I would argue that, though, because I feel like there are definite scenes where Layla's like, I don't understand why you're quitting this car dealership. Like, this gives us a good living, and you're going to, gonna like, throw all your money into this new venture because you want to be your own mm-hmm. boss. And she's like, we're not going to be able to, you know, take a vacation. We can't, like, these mm-hmm. even outlying stuff they're going to have to, like, cut back on because he wants to own his own business. And eventually he's imagining they'll like be way more successful than he ever was as a salesperson Mm -hmm. but like as a salesperson obviously like there are difficulties throughout but like it kind of is indicated that as a salesperson their life is like okay like Mm -hmm. it's not amazing but like they're able to enjoy like small luxuries and you Mm -hmm. know things like that no i agree with that that like he does give up opportunities that you're like you'd be fine here yeah because he has this like kind of pathological yeah and maybe like trim based in trauma need to be his own boss kind of thing and next we'll talk to anar ali about night of power Your mom and dad, they fuck you up? 
Can you tell us a little bit about that that line and that sentiment a little bit or that poem that you might have quoted from the book? Sure. Well, you know, I first really even heard Philip Larkin, the poet, when I was in uh, England, and it was this really magical night. I always describe it to people as one of the best evenings ever because it was Jeremy Irons reading Philip Larkin at the British Library, and this was one of the poems he read. And I'd known of Philip Larkin, but I had, this is my first time really getting into him. And it just, so that was my first hearing that poem and then picking up the book. But the sentiment of that, I think, is just valid across the board. Like, you know, people will often feel like, especially when they're teenagers, that um, nothing their parents do is right or good enough and that they carry forward the mistakes of their parents. And um, some people get over that. Most people do and some people don't. So I think that's where it was coming from. What year did you see? You saw Jeremy Irons reading? I know. That's amazing. Isn't that yeah. isn't crazy? Do you remember other poems from that night, or is that the one that sort of sticks with you the most? That's the one that sticks out for me. Yeah, it's always been the one that sticks out for me. Um, nothing I can quote from. Um, it was just mesmerizing. Yeah. Yeah, to be like almost like the distance we're at. Oh, that's amazing. And listening to him, and you know, he's this... He's just so lovely to listen to, but so lovely to look at. So there was, yeah. So it was um, Night of Power. Were you already sort of thinking about this story and then you heard that poem? Or is that something you'd heard and sort of been marinating for years and then sort of found its way into Night of Power? Oh, yeah. Good question. I felt that, you know, I was actually in England for a bunch of reasons. and But one of them was the British Library has this amazing archive uh, leave it to the British to document everything, and uh, which is great. And they there was this great archive of um, Ugandan newspapers. So I wanted to just read through all of what was actually happening in the current uh, way. And uh, so I was there also doing research. So I, I was so early in the stages of thinking about it. I don't think it seeped in. And I often am that kind of writer who like things happen and much later do they kind of find their way together, if that makes sense. Makes yeah. total sense. Okay. So before we get further on that, okay. one of the things that we do um, on the podcast is we ask our authors to describe themselves, how they describe themselves and a little bit about the book and how they want to be described. Do you mind doing that a little bit? Sure. Um, I'll do my best. Uh, I think it's easier to describe the book than me. I think because I come from the film world uh, a little bit is I think the tagline it's um, death of a salesman set in an immigrant family, which is really oh that's the great that's, that's a awesome. fantastic yeah can you tell us a little significance about the night of power? Sure. So the night of power is uh, in Arabic it's Laytul Qadr. Um, it's the night that the Quran was really revealed to the Prophet, and. Um, it falls on different date, uh, days for different communities. So the Ismailis believe it's on the 23rd night of Ramadan. And um, it's basically, it's a night that's so powerful that if you pray that night, it's like praying for a thousand nights. And um, so it was actually just recently. And I don't practice, and but my family lives near the Aga Khan Museum, which is also near the Ismaili Center. So I ended up having going, which I hadn't been for a while. And I didn't stay all night or anything, but it was really actually lovely. The prayer hall is just gorgeous. 
but they were really it was really adorable because they had they were like cards and stuff for the young people about how not to waste even a second of tonight and they had like a <laughs> breakdown of how each second was worth like one second i don't remember it was like 1.3 days right because it's a thousand nights ah. so it's like yeah so you know and i was thinking a lot of these young people are like okay i'll do that and i'm not going to be here at all yeah, forever like, well, i just i just yeah, did, I did my it. investment of prayers <laughs> for like 2 years <laughs> 3 years <laughs> I'm sure there's some of them thinking that. So. I, like, I sort of like this, um, I, this, maybe not the wrong word, but this economy of prayer. <laughs> <laughs> I think economy of prayer, is that a, is that, that's not totally but the there, right way. A, but, it, one, but it could be. be. I'm sure some people would think about it that way. We, we love the part where, um, and Evan was actually the one that pointed out, where uh, they prayed for Mansoor a certain way, and then they found out they were praying for the wrong thing yeah. for him. And they had to really double their efforts to get to make <laughs> yeah. up for it. I, I found that so like fascinating. I guess the way, that sort of way of how you know, I guess the characters in the book look yeah. at prayer. Yeah, and you know, and it's funny because for me, you know, we've kind of like downplayed the ideas of prayer because prayer traditionally has been like in the context of religion. Yeah. But you know, we are still there's still a part of us that's spiritual. And it's just like I think part of the book too is even though it's not about it's not a, it's you know part of Shafina for instance is really about I think she's really thinks of herself as spiritual you know she's but it's poetry and music and so I think it's about how we reach those parts of us and how we pray so I think there's just different ways of praying I think I say a little prayer every time the streetcar stops in the street and people are gonna like step out I feel I find myself <laughs> just being like. Please look to your right. <laughs> well, you right? Know, yeah, because it's terrifying. It's a terrifying prayer. thing. Well, we've been talking about this a lot within okay. our kind of group of just like secular, not religion, because that doesn't make sense, but secular spirituality and secular practices yeah. and idea of putting your intentions, making them clear, understanding what they are, and then externalizing that in, in some way, even if it's just to yourself. That is a practice that uh, anyone and everyone can do and can benefit from. And as you just said, you say a little agnostic prayer to I just the universe. Only, yeah. You're not uh, to so a far. god, it's and it's so working far. so far. So don't stop. I want to stay with the the poem and the and the family parents. Stuff sure, first, I have. Wanna, a, I, well, one thing I wanted to to ask, which I think will take us back there. I think that we see we see a couple different attitudes towards moving and settling and resettling hmm. shown in the book. And we see a tension, a fundamental tension within the family between assimilation and differentiation, or at least trying to keep uh, the identity and the things that you've brought with you present and still a part of your identity. Did you find yourself trying to, did you lean more on either of those? Or the many times you've moved, you must have oscillated between trying to assimilate and trying to differentiate? Yeah, yeah. no, definitely. I think that's true. And I think... You know, I think I've probably gone through all those different versions. Uh, and I think part of it is time, right? Um, because I think when you're really little and young, you follow what your parents are doing. Mm -hmm. And um, But also coming from the community I've come from, the Ismaili community, which is also like, is not a first time, uh, it's in, in our history, it's not been the first time we've immigrated. Right. So it's like this long history of immigration from India to Africa, and even if, my mom, well, my parents are both from Zanzibar. And if you look at my mom, she doesn't particularly look Indian. And you're, there's kind of this idea there's probably some mixing there, Middle Eastern. So who knows? Mm -hmm. So I think that um, 
Yeah, so there, it's really been actually more towards assimilation to really like that's been kind of what I grew up with. Mm. And so it took it was later in life that I was kind of like trying to find roots that were going back to India, for instance, or going back to the Middle East and stuff like that. So, and in fact, things that were challenging for my family because they didn't understand why I would even want that because mm -hmm. for them that has not necessarily been uh, an issue. So it's kind of oscillated between those things. We didn't talk too much about the Ismaili history or the yeah. or what the culture too much because yeah. we knew you were coming and you would be able to teach us a little bit. So maybe a little, maybe a, my follow-up question would be, what did you want to sort of make stand out about the community or what are the things that you wanted to make sure you depicted or questions mm. you wanted to ask or things you wanted to show about the about the Ismaili experience you know I wasn't thinking about that I really wasn't when I was writing the book and I still don't quite I think because that shows up I think within the family so for me I'm always operating from within that character and just seeing that world from that place but I think if I was going to answer that question, I would say the one thing is that um, if, it, if it was speaking to an Ismaili community particularly is to be less nervous about being who they are. You know, I think there's so much nervousness. Like I remember in my first book launch, if there was an Ismaili person in the audience, inevitably I'd get the question, well, but who gave you permission to write the book? I want to ask you about business. Yeah. But first, I want to ask you that question that that person asked you. Who gave you permission? Yeah. You, you know, felt like you were given permission. Do you feel like you needed to be given permission? What What's the story? I was about? nervous. Yeah. I really, for the first uh, book, I was exceptionally nervous because it took a lot of thinking if I was going to name the community. I could have followed M.G. Vasanji, and he names the community as the Shamshis, um, but everyone knows it's the Ismailis. Um I had to do a lot of thinking about it. And I decided that that was my job as an artist, is not, I didn't need to have permission. And um, that is, I think, something that is challenging for some people, and I get that. Um, and I understand that there's a nervousness around that. But I also think that there's less reasons for us to be nervous now. You know, there's no reasons to be nervous. I mean, at least not in Canada. Mm -hmm. And yes, you can. we can argue that, you know, being Muslim is ner being nervous enough, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So we don't need yet another reason to be nervous. But I think in this part of the world, we can generally feel safe that we can speak out. And really, I think if you're especially a writer and you're writing about, I mean, I'm setting this uh, story within the Ismaili community, but for me, the the great hope, I think it's a great hope of every writer, is it becomes a universal story. Uh, we were really taken with the different definitions of work in the book. We have a couple different iterations. We have, of, co of course, uh, Mansoor, who is a business owner. We have Ashif, who is a on the right track if you're going to work for someone else. We have Layla, who is uh, also an entrepreneur, but maybe a less understood type. And then we have Shafina, who's seemingly kind of living a a dream, a dream that is not normally feels accessible or encouraged in in some immigrant contexts. A, a, a career of journalism or arts and letters is not normally the recommended path, let's say. So was that important to you to kind of show different definitions of work? And you touched a little bit about why it might be very important to to own a business. So can you talk a little bit more about that sure. and how that, that, why that it's important and... Sure. I mean, you know, I think I think maybe the easiest way to answer it is like my own story, which was, you know, I grew up in businesses. In fact, uh, I grew up in small town Alberta, 
And right in a row outside of Red Deer, Alberta, it was called Gasoline Alley. We, my parents had to own a motel. There's a gas station. Then there's another motel owned by another Ismaili family who happens to be the Nenshis, who's Nahid Nenshis' parents. So I grew up with the Nenshis. And then right next to them was another motel also owned by Ismailis. And they're all in a row and it's not even in town. And But we happened, it's not like it was coordinated. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be that. So I'm going on a bit of a tangent to say that it's inbred, you know, that kind of growing up in businesses. So my when I f- went to school, I actually had ex- been accepted to journalism school. But my dad dis- discouraged me from doing it from a good place. I wasn't strong enough <laughs> to say I'm going mm-hmm. and too respectful as we're taught to do in a lot of our cultures. So I kind of didn't. And so for uh, a lot of years, I uh, I did my business degree, went to uh, worked at Procter & Gamble for mm. about eight, nine years, and then um, had an epiphany when I met Shyam Salvadori, the writer, uh, on a very random way. And uh, he didn't mean to do this. He says this now. He's a friend. He signed his book, Funny Boy, saying, I told him, I think I might want to be a writer. And he said, we ended up having a lunch together, and he wrote his, signed his book and said, Dear Nar, take the plunge. It's worth it. And I, <laughs> oh. And so the next day on Monday, actually, was a, I, I went in and tried to quit at Procter & Gamble. They thought it was crazy. And so all that to say, it was all this resistance. And so it, I came to my writing very late. And I just think that, you know, for me, it was not intentional in the book, but I do think that there's so many people who have this idea of how these ways of living the way Shafina wants to live is impossible. But I actually think the more particularly of color writers we have and artists, the better. So, Anar, Mm. if someone has just read Night of Power Mm. and they like the ideas and the spirit and the themes and they want to continue with, you know, with that conversation, what song should they listen to? Oh, no. Or an album. Or an album. (laughs) Oh, I love that's the song. So one. tough for me because <laughs> I have this like all my friends would tell you like me and whatever I have is some sort of blankness for naming songs and albums. So I'm, but let me think. Okay. Um, and take your time. It's take it. your time. Well, we can Google. You can sing it, and we can find it. Oh, I can't you know. sing it for sure. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you because maybe because it's part of the book uh-huh. is it would be Dolly Parton's. And Kenny Rogers, because um, it's not quite right. But, you know, for Munster, it was like so much of the book also is about um, these people who are isolated. And so Islands in the Streams, actually, I quoted a lot of Dolly Parton. And actually, Dolly Parton and country music, because I grew up in Alberta, was really big. And you would think, what? Why would you be into it? You know, like, but, but beyond Alberta. But there are lots of like rhythmically similarities between Bollywood and country. Oh, interesting. And if you look at some of the costumes and stuff, like Dolly Parton and how she dresses, yeah. she could be Bollywood. Yeah. She could totally, with all those tassels, pageantry and the, pageantry. the pageantry and the craziness, yes. and then even her physicality. And, you know, she's got this kind of like, she's just a white Bollywood star. And so I know so many men of Munster's generation who are big fans of her. I love that yes. idea. Amazing answer. So, okay. That's amazing. amazing awesome. Okay. okay, good. You want to go next? Okay. And if people are loving Night of Power and they're trying to stay on a similar vibe and a similar feeling, what is a movie or TV show that they could watch? Yeah. So many though. Um, right? Because what's exciting is it's a great time, right? So let me think for a sec so that I can, don't have to give endless ones, but, um, 
I mean, movies, the first ones that come to, to mind are Namesake, mm-hmm. which was like a book, right? Like Jhumpa Lahiri's book, and then Amira Nair did that uh, movie, which is, I thought, really strong. Um, Meditation Park, which is uh, Sandra O oh starts in it, and it's Mina Shum, who's a Canadian director, mm. who's lovely. Can you tell us a little bit about that show and sure. why? Yeah. yeah, so, you know, it's more from a woman's perspective, but it's really the story of uh, a Korean family where in the very early part of the film, an uh, older couple, and she discovers the husband's been having an affair. Mm-hmm. And so it's really watching this family. Sandra Oh is the daughter. And it's really the story about a woman coming to of, of age. So even though it's not, Night of Power is not coming of age in some ways, but it is. Like it's a coming of age for Ashif, but in some ways there's a sense that Layla might go there too. Yeah, definitely. You know, she might go there for other reasons. So uh, Meditation Park, um, TV-wise, you know, um, things that I really like are um, people are mixed mixed about it, but I really like Kim's Convenience. Mm-hmm. I think it's really great because it's touching on all those subjects as well. And I know like Mindy Kaling's got a new show coming up, which will be really interesting. I don't, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's set from a teenage perspective of being growing up of color in the U.S., which is kind of fun. That's great, yeah. Um, so those are the couple ones that come to mind. Yeah. That's fan- those are yeah. great. Okay. And what's our last one? Our last one. So we have one more. And it, sure. so if you want to continue the conversation that started in Night of Power, yeah. What book should should our uh, listeners read? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to name one that I'm just is older, but one of my favorite books, and it's uh, made possibly unexpected. It's Changre Lee's Native Speaker, and Changre Lee, for people who don't know, is like. Korean American. It's this wonderful book, but again, it's not it's not set from a necessarily family perspective, but it's set from the perspective of a Korean American guy. But all the things he's going through, and he's just like in a separation with a white Canadian, a white American woman, and it's really about identity, and but also about work. And for him, it ends up being trying to his newness of work is he ends up working on an election in the Bronx. And there's a whole thing that happens between the Korean community and uh, the black community. So it's like looking at race, but not necessarily looking at race from the way we normally think of it, like always the person of color looking at it from the white. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, so it's really complicated. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's one of my favorite books. Are you on social media if our listeners want to find and follow you? How can they do that? Yeah, I'm not huge on social media. I have, like many of us, mixed feelings about it. Sure. Um, So I'm on uh, Instagram, semi-new to it, and it's uh, under Anar Wali. So it's Anar with a W-H-A-L-I. So it's like Narwhal with A and I at the end. Nice. Um, And that's pretty much it right now. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in to oh, talk to us about your thanks. book, uh, Night of Power is on sale. Uh, you can find it wherever you enjoy buying books. And um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.